My global IQ is 109. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Thank you so much for being with us, which I think is going to be a fascinating conversation with Angela Stent, Professor Angela Stent. She's the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. This book was published in late 2018, and it's going to be coming out in paperback in just a few weeks. In fact, when I was talking to Professor Stent earlier this week, she said she had just pushed the send button uh, to the publisher. And indeed, it comes. I'm sure she'll talk about this. It really takes us up almost to today. Thank you very much, Angela. Thank you very much, Jim. Good morning or good afternoon, everybody, depending on where you are. I'm delighted to appear on this program. Jim had asked me last year to come to Dallas and somehow it hadn't worked out. And so from the comfort of lockdown in Washington, yes, we're still locked down until June 8th at least. I'm very happy to speak to all of you. So I'll say a few words about why I wrote the book and then I'll say a little bit more about the epilogue and bringing it up to date in the era of the COVID pandemic. So as I was writing the book, I was really asking three questions. The first one was, why was the West so wrong after the Soviet collapse in believing that post-Soviet Russia would want to become more like the West, would want to integrate with the West? And why did we, were we wrong in believing that closer economic relations with Russia would somehow facilitate better political relations? The second question is, how was Putin's Russia, with a GDP the size of that of Italy, with a declining population, with crumbling infrastructure, and with over-dependence on oil and gas revenues for its budget, and we see now what's happening with oil prices so low, how is Russia with these limited resources able to reassert itself on the world stage as a global player, going back to areas of the world from which it withdrew after the Soviet collapse? And how come, despite Russia's bad relations with the West, with Europe and the US, many other countries in the world regard Russia as a large authoritarian country with whom they can do business. Hence the against the West and with the rest in the title of my book. And the third question, which is always the most difficult is, what can we do about it? Would there be any way to have a more productive relationship with Russia going forward? So just a few um, hints on the, these three questions. Um, it turns out that one of the reasons we were wrong about Russia in the 1990s after the Soviet collapse was because we thought that the major reason why it was so hard to deal with and get along with the Soviet Union was because they were communists. But it turns out that one of the major reasons was because they're Russians. And by that, I'm not trying to do character assassination. I'm just saying that Russians have a very distinct view of their place in the world, of the drivers of world politics, but also of the relationship between people and their rulers. Um, which I think we didn't understand enough. Um, we have seen uh, Putin uh, on many occasions say, Russia is a unique great civilization. It's different from that as the West. It has different values. They're as legitimate as those of the West. And I go back and quote a 19th century Slavovile poet, Fyodor Chuchev, who said that there can never be good relations between Russia and the West. They will always be antagonistic. So some of that really is part of the Russian tradition. Um, and also the need to restore a strong state. So when Putin came to power, and it's 20 years ago, May 9th, 
uh, 2000, he was inaugurated as president for the first time. Um, uh, uh, and he has always said uh, that it was his mission to restore a strong state and then also to restore Russia as a great power. Um, the other thing that's very important to understand about Russian traditions and mindset is um, because Russia has no natural borders except in the north, it has historically always expanded to absorb neighboring territories in order to keep itself safe. And I quote the great Catherine the Great, the Russian Tsarina, who of course was uh, a Prussian princess uh, before she came to Russia saying, um, that which stops growing begins to rot. I have to expand my borders and eat in order to keep my population safe. So this idea of defensive expansionism is very much um, historically inborn, again, of the Russians' view of their place on the Eurasian continent. And if we're going to talk about Ukraine later, I think one has to understand that mindset, talking about what has happened uh, with Ukraine and some of the other post-Soviet states. Now, on the question of how Putin was able to accomplish this, two very brief points. One of them is he had a plan. When he came to power in 2000, he looked at what had happened in the 1990s and he thought, this is a disaster, it's chaos, we're economically very weak, we've been humiliated, we have to adopt an agenda set by the United States, but I have a plan to restore Russia. Um, uh, and indeed, he was very bent on doing that at a time when I would argue the US, the West didn't have such a plan. And the second reason is that Putin has been very adept at taking advantage of opportunities offered to him by a West that's been distracted, uh, that's been fractured, uh, that's been looking the other way. And the reason Putin is not a brilliant strategist, but he's a very clever tactician. Um, and there are two really two reasons that inform his ability to do that. One, he was trained as a KGB case officer. So he does know how to kind of psych people out to understand their character, maybe where their weaknesses are. But the second one, equally important, is Putin, the judoist, as they call him in Russia. Uh, Putin's sport is not chess, it's judo. He was a judo champion. In my book, I have a picture uh, from the Leningrad Evening News uh, in, when he was 24 years old proclaim, in, 19, in 1976, claiming this is the new judo champion and watch this man, he's gonna go far. Well, at that point, they didn't realize how far he would go. But, um, and he still practices judo. And so in judo, you can be weaker than your opponent, but if you understand their weakness and their distraction, you can prevail. And so he's been very, um, I think, adept at doing that, at taking advantage of these opportunities. So in my book, I go into what I would call the two major successes of Putin's foreign policy. And I think we'll discuss those more in the Q&A. One of them is the relationship with China. I would just say, you have to remember 50 years ago, Soviet and Chinese troops were shooting at each other across their common border. People were writing books called, with the title War Between Russia and China without a question mark. And yet today, and I have a picture in my book of Putin and Xi Jinping making blini, Russian pancakes together. Um, they are, um, uh, you know, at least formally good friends. They praise each other all the time. This is a strategic partnership. It's not without its problems. And when we talk about the response maybe to COVID, it's an interesting example of where in the beginning, uh, the Russians sealed the border completely with China. Uh, the Chinese were not very happy about that, but now they're kind of working together um, from Putin's point of view, China is very important because the Chinese leadership is never going to question the domestic situation in Russia. It's never going to criticize Putin for what he's doing to his own population. 
And then the second area, and again, I'm happy to talk about that more, is Russia's return to the Middle East as really the major great power interlocutor that, even though obviously the United States is economically and militarily much more powerful. Um, but this time, unlike the Soviet era, Russian policy is very pragmatic. Uh, Putin and Russia talk to all um, leaders on all sides of every conflict in the Middle East, um, to Iran, to the major Shia states, um, and of course to Israel. And in fact, the two newest partners that Russia has in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Israel, um, uh, are both, of course, close U.S. allies. They both think that Russia can temper what Iran does. We can argue about whether that's true or not. Uh, but anyway, this is a, a major success for Putin. Again, I'm happy to talk in the Q&A more about what's happening in Syria and what Russia has accomplished. So um, just a few words. Obviously, the U.S.-Russian relationship, and in general, the relationship with the West um, has been pretty antagonistic since the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the launch of a war in southeastern Ukraine. People are still dying in that war. I think the total now is about 14,000 people um, have perished in this conflict. Um, and um, there are what rafts of sanctions. Europe, I would say right now, is kind of divided about how to deal with Russia. And again, happy to talk more about that. And in the US, since uh, Mr. Trump has been in the White House, I would say we have a very bifurcated policy towards Russia. Uh, the president himself, I don't need to tell you, believes that the US can make a deal with Russia. Um, he doesn't understand why the relationship is so bad. Both President Trump and President Putin continuously praise each other. Um, I go every year to a meeting in Russia called the Valdai uh, International Discussion Club. Um, and at the end of our meeting, uh, we meet with President Putin, and he has consistently praised President Trump and said uh, that the American people should give him a chance to, to sort of fulfill his agenda. Um, on the other hand, the executive branch, I would say, has pursued a pretty tough policy toward Russia, and the U.S. Congress, of course, has taken away the power of the president to impose and remove sanctions from Russia, and so now it's very difficult to remove those. So, um, but the problem in this country clearly is that Russia is a very toxic domestic issue. It's, I don't need to tell you that again, it's tied up with our own domestic politics and with people um, who believe that had the Russians not done what they did, interfered in 2016, maybe Donald Trump wouldn't be in the White House. And it's very difficult to have a reasoned discussion about Russia uh, at the moment. That may change after November. We can certainly talk about that um, going forward. So I think I'll finally say a few words um, about Russia in the time of the COVID pandemic. What we've seen in Russia is, um, first of all, a slow response. Now, Russia, I'm not going to compare Russia to other countries here. Russia's not the only country that had a slow response. They did cr close the border with China very early, but then uh, they didn't do very much. Um, and the problem for Russia is the economic impact has been doubled. I mean, we see how bad it is here because Russia and Saudi Arabia entered into a, an ill-advised oil price war at the beginning of March, where the Russians didn't want to come cut back on their production, uh, and the Saudis wanted further cutbacks. And then, as you know, suddenly the price of oil was minus zero. Uh, the problem is, of course, demand has collapsed in the COVID era. So the Russian economy, people believe, may um, lose up to 10% this year, even more than that. 
And that's compounded again by this collapse in oil prices, even though the Russians are better equipped to deal with this today than they were in the time of Gorbachev or Yeltsin, when oil prices were also very, very low, um, it's still a huge burden on the economy. Russia now has the second largest number of cases in the world after the United States. In the past week, there have been 10,000 new cases every day. Uh, they're now up, I think this morning it said 262,000. The death toll, that the official death toll is much lower than you'd expect it to be, but the New York Times and the Financial Times have now come out with reporting based on Russian statistics, claiming that in fact the um, death toll may be 70% higher. So it's, it's a huge problem. The public health system in Russia was weak to begin with, and particularly in the rural areas, uh, there are some areas 30, where 30% 30 of the medical facilities don't have running hot water and don't have air conditioning. I mean, excuse me, don't have heating. <laughs> they don't need air conditioning. So it's a real, uh, the, the public health system is under tremendous strain. Again, uh, there's a, a big piece in the New York Times today about how people are suffering. So Putin had this great project, um, which he announced the beginning of March. Um, they're going to have a referendum and they're going to vote to push the button, the reset button on his terms in office so that when his term is at an end in 2024, he can run for another two terms. He's had to postpone that referendum. It's not clear when they're going to have it. Uh, there was going to be this huge parade and celebration May 9th, marking the 75th anniversary of the end of uh, World War II. Of course, it had to be postponed. And instead of a glorious parade and all the, the most modern weapons and world leaders, you had Mr. Putin alone with a bunch of roses at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, kneeling in meditation or prayer and making a very short speech. So everything's on hold. Putin is at his home just outside Moscow. Um, he is deputed um, dealing with the crisis to the mayor of Moscow, um, who has, is really the major figure here, to the prime minister, Mr. Mishustin, whom his, who himself now has COVID. And so he's um, temporarily stepped aside. And people are just wondering about, you know, this project of Putin 2036, what's going to happen to it? And public opinion polls, and I think I'll finish here, show that Mr. Putin's rating day is lower than it's been since at any time before the annexation of Crimea. It's at 59%. Now, to an American, that sounds pretty good. But given that his popularity ratings were in the 80s uh, and, and in the 70s, this is um, a fall. Um, the more and more medical personnel are complaining about um, complete inadequacy uh, of provisions for them, of equipment. Um, and so I think that the, the COVID pandemic, no one knows, of course, how it's all going to come out. But I think it has the ability to call into question um, this kind of centralized, firm, authoritarian rule that we've seen really for the last 20 years of Putin in power. So I'll stop there. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. One of the things that surprised me is that at one point, President Obama uh, referred, described Russia as a regional power. 
And you know, one of the things people always talked about how Russia was so dependent on its oil for its economy, and yet its reserves now are quite high. And that surprised me. And I wonder, you know, what does the price of oil need to be for Russia to meet its budget? And how long can it sustain such a low price in oil? I mean, that's a great question. And by the way, um, I think probably President Obama might be rethinking calling Russia a regional power. Obviously, the relationship between President Obama and President Putin was really not good. Um, and this is all, was all part of it. So it used to be that the price, the Russians have said recently that if it's $42 a barrel, it's fine for their budget. They can balance the budgets. They've obviously had to recalibrate that. Um, they're now saying that at $25, you know, they can deal with it. The, the ruble um, has a floating exchange rate that helps. But as you say, the most important thing is at the moment, uh, Russia still has $500 billion of reserves. So you can, you can criticize the Russians for not modernizing their economy, for being excessively dependent on oil and gas reserves, but they have very astutely created you know, the rainy day funds um, and, and these hard currency reserves that they can deploy. Um, and so that, will, that is certainly gonna help them in this crisis. Um, I do think that if oil remains at whatever it is, $25, $30 a barrel, um, it's still going to be tough for them, but they're much better off than they were, again. Uh, uh, Pachakoria. Salom says, Russia has a history of exploiting West energy dependence on Russia to exert influence. Do you think energy independence uh, from the West might be more effective than sanctions against Russia? It's a great question. I mean, I think that we, I think one can really question what the, um, the sanctions against Russia have accomplished. And actually, so far, most of the U.S. sanctions have avoided the energy sector with, of course, the uh, big uh, exception of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which will be completed. It's just going to take longer uh, because the Russians have to do it instead of uh, using the Swiss company that, that was going to do it. And independence is very important. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, Putin and the Russians didn't want to go along um, with what the Saudis were asking them to do at the beginning of March um, is because uh, really, they were really trying to push U.S. shale producers out of business. So they thought, right, by uh, flying the market with oil, this would be very bad for U.S. shale producers. And of course, it was a problem, and that's why President Trump intervened, and he, he then brokered this deal with the Saudis and the Russians for everyone to cut back on production. Um, but of course, I, I mean, I think energy independence is the answer to this. And I think it's also, Russia has tended to use energy as, as, a, as a point of leverage really with countries like Ukraine, we've seen that, Belarus. Um, but if you look at the West, if you talk to the Germans, you know, they've been importing gas from Russia, the Soviet Union uh, since 1972, and they've really never experienced any of this kind of leverage. So I think when you look at uh, the Russian use of the energy tool, you always have to remember the Russians need the revenues. They need the money. Obviously, gas is, is different than oil in terms of your ability to exert leverage, but um, I think we shouldn't exaggerate the extent to which they use this leverage. Now, having said that, at one of these gatherings uh, with President Putin, the Valdai gatherings, this was in 2006, I actually asked President Putin, is Russia an energy superpower? And his answer was, well, he thought that superpower was an old-fashioned term. It goes back to the Cold War. But he said, Russia has lots of energy. <laughs> you know, we have more energy than anyone else. 
and no one should think that our energy resources belong to them. So that was the answer. So there's certainly been a little rupture in the relations between Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia and, and Putin. Uh, are they going to be able to get back together on some of the other issues that they were working on, such as arms sales? Yeah, so I think there obviously was a rupture. Um, and, it, and, you know, we mustn't forget it was the Saudis that instigated this because the Russians and Saudis had an agreement that was supposed to last until June. And it was the Saudis who then said, we want to cut back more. So there was a rupture. But the stakes there are greater. I mean, again, um, for, for, from Putin's point of view, to have this uh, strategic relationship, if you like, um, with Saudi Arabia, given Saudi Arabia's own relationship with the United States, um, is very important. Um, arms sales are an important part of this. The Saudis have at least pledged to invest $10 billion. They did this some time ago in Russia. I'm not sure how far that's gone. Um, but it's a relationship that goes beyond just oil and gas. It's developing into, I think, a more fully-fledged one. So I doubt that you're really going to see a breach there. I think they will get over this, both sides. Um, you know, in your in introduction, you really didn't talk that much about Turkey. And that seems to be such a mm -hmm. difficult relationship to figure out because you have the uh, uh, Turkey bought the, what is it, the S S-400 defensive right. weapons. And yet in Syria, they seem to be on opposite sides. So what's, what's the story there? It's a very complicated relationship. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, they are on different sides in the Syrian civil war, um, definitely. And, you know, you saw just a few weeks ago um, when uh, Syrian troops killed uh, a number of Turkish troops, um, Erdogan was absolutely furious and furious with Russia because obviously Russia backs um, the Syrian troops. Um, Russia has tried to bring, and you can see that in the photo there, uh, the Iranians and Turks together uh, uh, to come to some agreement about Syria. And that works sometimes, but it doesn't work the rest of the time. After the US withdrew, you had this Russian-Turkish agreement to, to control these new spaces. Um, the Turks are not happy with the offensive that the Russians uh, and Syrians are undertaking against the Idlib province. We know this has produced up to, I think, a million refugees, or at least it had until COVID hit, many of whom, of course, would, you know, are going to go to Turkey. And the Turks want to have their own region there, which they still control. So on the one hand, they, they have different interests there, but they're, if you like, doomed to collaborate. And on the other hand, Turkey has used the relationship with Russia to remind the United States and its NATO allies that it has other, other options too. Uh, I mean, the Turks are still very angry that the United States won't extradite uh, Fethullah Gulen, whom uh, Erdogan believes was responsible for the attempted coup against him. The Russians obviously back the Turks up in, in what they say about that. Um, Turkey has the S-400. So, um, Erdogan keeps, it's, it's a tight rope, a balancing act, um, and I'm not sure how it will, you know, I'm sure that we'll see other conflicts in Syria. I mean, don't forget a few years ago, um, the Turks shot down a Russian plane that had um, strayed into Turkish airspace, and for about six, eight months, the relationship was completely cut off. Um, so um, it's a sort of a tinderbox still.
Uh, we have two questions that are somewhat similar, so I'll pose them together. Uh, Lilas Rome says, Tim Snyder has commented on Putin's reliance on Ivan Ilyin as a philosophical influence on his policies. To what extent do you think the ideological return to the 19th century Slavophile ideas harm Russian progress? And the other question that's related to that, is Putin still fighting the Cold War? <laughs> yeah, those are great questions. So those are very important questions because, you know, we like to say, oh, the Cold War is over and we don't have any ideological differences with Russia as we had during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. That's not true. And Ivan Ilyin is, of course, uh, yeah, uh, uh, someone who, who has apparently influenced Putin a lot. Again, a kind of nationalistic, very conservative, um, anti-Western um, uh, philosopher who lived in exile after the Bolshevik Revolution, um, and very much going back to these traditional values. So uh, for Putin, he likes to promote Russia now as the leader, if you like, of a conservative international, um, and appeals to, uh, I mean, Russians who live abroad and in other places, but also to um, more traditional countries. He says the West has lost its way, that we're decadent, um, that our social policies are satanic, Etc. Etc. Um, and so appealing to a large number of different countries, but also to his own population. Um, and and so I think, you know, I think that that is a very important element of um, Russia's view of how it's dealing with the West and putting itself forward as an alternative and equally legitimate. So in that sense, Putin probably is still fighting the Cold War. I think there's some people in this country who are also still fighting the Cold War. Um, and the problem is, you know, he, he does come from the KGB. He was raised during the Soviet era. Uh, when Gorbachev was in power and you had a thousand flowers blooming, if you like, in, uh, in Moscow, he was in East Germany in a provincial um, uh, town where he missed all of that kind of ferment and debate um, about communism. So he certainly isn't a communist. Um, and he, he appears to be, have found religion. Obviously, he has his own uh, confessor. He goes to church regularly, uh, and he's embraced um, Orthodox Christianity in a way, obviously, that when he was a KGB agent, he couldn't. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's maybe refighting the Cold War, but on different terms. Um, and it's more, if you like, culture wars. And then another side of it, um, and you saw that in the lead up to the um, commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II is really to question all of the Western narrative about how World War II broke out, about the U.S. role. I mean, the Russians have now said that the D-Day landings really weren't important and that the American role in World War II is really not important. They've obviously denied the truth, which is that they invaded Eastern Poland two weeks after the Nazis invaded Western Poland as a result of the Nazi-Soviet Is this a relatively new uh, phenomenon, this revisionist history? So it's been going on for some time. I mean, under Gorbachev and Yeltsin, that was the first time when they admitted all these things, where they opened the archives. It's slowly been happening under Putin, but it, it's accelerated, I would say, since the Ukraine events in 2014 and certainly in the lead up uh, to this anniversary, which has now been postponed. Angela, when does your book, The Paperback, come out? Is the paperback comes out in July uh, and uh, with a new epilogue. Well, congratulations on that. Um, I really want to encourage everyone to, uh, I guess, wait and pick up the paperback because I, I read the epilogue this morning and really learned a great deal. And thank you so much for being with us. Um, it was very kind of thank you to spend time with thank us. You.
and look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for being with us with Professor Angela Stanton.